Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books uh, Network. Um, this is the Christian Studies Channel. I'm Justin McGeary. I'm one of the hosts of this channel. Today we'll be talking about the book, The Spirit of the Age, the 19th century uh, debate over the Holy Spirit in the Westminster Confession, which examines a debate in 19th century America in the Northern Presbyterian Church. The debate involved a number of things, but one of them uh, was related to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Prominent in the book is Charles Briggs, who was the then professor of uh, Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And he advocated revising the Westminster Confession, particularly by adding a chapter on the Holy Spirit. And it is that debate uh, that is the subject of the book. And joining me today for our conversation is John Fesco, a prolific author and the author of this book, The Spirit of the Age. John, welcome to the show. Uh, Justin, it's good to be with you. I'm excited and looking forward to our conversation. Me as well. Um, I wonder, before we actually get into the content of the book, if you could just share a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Um, well, I am a, currently a professor of systematic and historical theology. Um, I've been blessed to be in an endowed chair. I'm the Harriet Barber professor and uh, here at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary at RTS uh, Jackson, which is in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, so I've been here for about three and a half years. And uh, I'm an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, I was ordained, uh, as my kids would say, way back in the 1900s. Uh, and uh, so I've been uh, in ordained ministry. I want to say this upcoming year will be my 25th year. And so it's, uh, it's been a blessing. And so I was a pastor uh, for the first roughly 10 years or so uh, of my ministry before going full time into, uh, you know, into uh, teaching. And so I've been a, a full time professor ever since uh, 2009. And uh, as you said, I, you know, I love writing books and I've got a family uh, and uh, I've got uh, three kids and a wife. And we live here in a, uh, the greater uh, Jackson area. And uh, we, uh, you know, yeah, we're just real blessed here and uh, excited to be a part of the RTS family. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So maybe you could just tell us how you came. Uh, you do write lots of books. How did you come to write this one? Um, looking at the Holy Spirit, Charles Briggs, the, re- the revision of the confession. Um, is the 19th century an area that you tend to focus on? Hmm. Yeah, no, I, you know, what's interesting is that when I was, I was first asked to write a book and it was for a different series by this publisher. And what's funny, and at least I can look upon it back upon it now and say, okay, it's funny now, uh, is that, um, I misunderstood the, the nature of the series. And so I wrote the book that, you know, you have now before you, the spirit of the age, they wanted something that was far shorter. And the book isn't, that long to begin with. I'm looking at it here. It's only 140 pages and that's, you know, from front to back, but um, they wanted something shorter, smaller and simpler and kind of more basic. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, are you guys interested in publishing it nevertheless? And they said, they took a look at it and said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And so as I, as I got into the material, um, you know, anytime you bring up the question of the Westminster Confession and the Holy Spirit, at least in my mind, as somebody who 
uh, reads a lot of church history, uh, there's always the question, or at least the criticism that rides in the back of my mind, oh, well, the Westminster Confession is deficient because it doesn't have a chapter on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the PC uh, USA Church, uh, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, in the uh, uh, turn, right around the turn of the 20th century, they had to uh, uh, remedy this supposed problem by creating a new chapter on the work of the Holy Spirit and including it uh, as a as an addition to or a revision of, you know, the Westminster Standard. So that's always kind of fascinated me, and uh, so I wanted to to dig deeper into that and to find out, you know at least in a prima facie looking at the uh, at the confession, why doesn't it have a chapter on the Holy Spirit? And, um, you know, I found I had certain suspicions and ideas, and um, I more or less, you know, kind of found a lot of interesting things. And I thought, well, let me let me see if I can document this. Uh, and so so that if people have that same question, they can hopefully you know, turn to my book and uh, learn all of the things that uh, I, I figured out and learned, but at the same time, maybe have uh, some impetus to look into other things that are related to it and maybe start digging into the footnotes and, and exploring the period more. Um, as far as the 19th century goes, uh, you know, I, I have some chief interests and the 19th century hasn't necessarily always been one of them. But the more that I've studied theology, I, I think that I've come to the conclusion that we are, not just historically, but in many respects, we are, um, we are all children of the 19th century ideologically. And so I thought, you know, I, I, I need to do more work in the 19th century because there are a lot of assumptions, not just in theology, but also in culture and in our mindset that we don't even realize we have inherited and that we work with and that we just assume uh, and that a lot of them come from, you know, trends and ideas and thinkers, theologians, philosophers, uh, churchmen that came from the 19th century. Uh, and so it's been something that I, you know, continue to, to try to keep track of and do as much uh, reading uh, about the period as I can so that I can hopefully understand more about our, our own day and age. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I think, well, as someone who tends to study the 19th century, I agree wholeheartedly, but you don't actually start the book um, in the 19th century. The first chapter, you look at a few theologians in the 20th century, uh, mostly noting what they say about the Holy Spirit uh, in kind of Reformed confessions and theology. Do you mind just giving us a, a little sampling to kind of, because it sort of sets up uh, sets up the 19th century and the, the rest of the book? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I go and I look at some of the criticisms, you know, and within the scope of the book, Charles Briggs, as you mentioned at the outset, is, is one of the critics, the 19th and early 20th century critics of the confession. But in addition to that, you have some other figures such as um, uh, J.B. Torrance, who has written a piece or two saying that, you know, look, you, you can see there's no chapter here on the Westminster, or sorry, on the uh, Holy Spirit. Uh, and then you can also look at some uh, contemporary 
um, systematic theologies, whether you're looking at, say, a Millard Erickson, a Wayne Grudem, uh, you know, or others who would say, you know, well, we're going to have we're going to have a dedicated chapter to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Whereas you look at earlier works, say 16th, 17th, 18th, and maybe even early 19th century, and you're going to maybe search in vain in the table of contents and say, where is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? You know, is it gone? And so the, the assumption is, and it's sometimes, sometimes I wonder if theologians judge books not by their covers, but by their table of contents. <laughs> um, and so they say, well, I don't see it in the table of contents. It must not be here. Uh, and so, you know, in, in, there's a sense in which in the present day, um, certainly in the latter portion of the 20th century, and now, you know, even continuing on today, there's been something of a renaissance, so to speak, although that's debatable, but a renaissance of interest in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, so much so that there are a lot of books being written on the Holy Spirit. And the impression that we get is, is okay, yeah, this is a renaissance. But yet one of the things that I try to set out in the book is to say, not so fast, um, there have been, uh, you know, the, 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 the church historically has always talked about the Holy Spirit, but they've just done so uh, in different ways and for different reasons in contrast to theologians who have been consciously or unconsciously uh, been influenced by the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. No, so that is, you know, the question that you ask in chapter two is, is the spirit absent from or present in the confession? And of course, Briggs has his uh, criticisms along with other folks like Schaff, uh, Philip Schaff, and you explore particularly the areas of scripture, uh, doctrine of scripture and Christology in order to kind of examine, uh, I guess, test case, uh, whether or not the spirit is present. I'd be interested to know, um, yeah, what did you find as far as uh, where is the Holy Spirit in the confession? Yeah, I think that if we, if we look at, um, you know, the, you know, just, you know, I always jokingly call it, do a control F search, you know, do a global search of, of an electronic version of the Westminster Confession, you're going to find that there are uh, multiple references uh, to the Holy Spirit. And in the back of the book, there's an appendix with all of them. And I think it's some, I don't know, I'm trying to remember 30 or 30 or so references or more uh, to the Holy Spirit. So that's the first observation is to see one, how frequently the Holy Spirit is mentioned, you know, say, for example, in the doctrine of scripture, which might not be a place that somebody would automatically turn. Um, you, you look to see what the divines say, and they say that, oh, no, you need to have the illumination of the Spirit in order to receive the, the Word of God as the Word of God. Okay, so that's an example of, of where the Holy Spirit is mentioned. But a second chapter, or a second chief location uh, where we see uh, the, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is at least at first glance in an unlikely place, because in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, you have its its chapters, and the eighth chapter is called Of Christ the Mediator. Now, at first glance, we might think, oh, okay, well, that's a chapter on Jesus, so I must, I should keep on going. Uh, but in uh, 
in contemporary Roman Catholic theology, especially, they have talked a lot about what they call a spirit Christology. In other words, it's a doctrine of Christ that also factors the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the connections between the two, because the claim is, is because we have so much focused on the doctrine of Christ, say in the ecumenical creeds and councils, that we've lost a sight <clears throat> of the of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say that may be so in Roman Catholic theology, although I'm sure that that would be a debated point. Uh, but I don't think it's the case with classic historic theology, and especially as we find it here in chapter 8, where I think chapter 8 is just as much about the person and work of Christ as much as it is about the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, so that in um, in chapter, uh, chapter 8, paragraph 3, for example, it says the Lord Jesus and his human nature thus united to the divine was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. So that's an interesting point I think that a, a lot of people may miss. And the way that I point it out to my students is I say, you know, Christ isn't his last name. Uh, it's his title, and it means anointed one. And so, okay, anointed anointed with what, or more more specifically, anointed with whom? Um, and in this case, we would say it's the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, in addition to this, um, you know, you, you see uh, the, the chapter eight speaking of uh, Jesus offering up his body uh, and being crucified in the power of the Spirit. He is, um, he is conceived in the power of of the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, Christ goes and applies and communicates the redemption by the Holy Spirit. You know, so to put it in contemporary terms, chapter eight is a, you know, Christological pneumatology or a pneumatological Christology, however you want to say it. Uh, but the, the Holy Spirit in that sense is all over the place and is especially concentrated here in chapter eight. Yeah, that I think is uh, is very striking, and maybe if only like someone like Charles Briggs had some of the tools of the digital humanities, that might have helped a little bit. Um, but um, one of the things you also do in the chapter is you compare the exegesis of Briggs um, with the Reformed uh, Orthodox uh, Reformed Orthodoxy um, uh, theologians, and I guess I wonder, you know, what did you conclude from that? Because when you look at the rhetoric, particularly from the time period, uh, and particularly Briggs's, you know, it's very much that um, uh, the earlier theologians are only, you know, um, picking proof texts uh, for their positions. So I guess one, qu two questions really is, what role did the uh, views on exegesis play? And then what was your conclusion as far as actually what kind of exegesis uh, are they doing, um, the earlier theologians? Yeah, that's that's one of the things. There's a sense in which for all of his complaining and criticism about how deficient the Westminster Confession is uh, regarding the Holy Spirit, as well as supposedly <clears throat> how deficient 
their theology is because of its lack of exegesis. You know, what I do is, among other texts, I talk about the fact that when you compare Briggs' exegesis of Psalm 133 with Reformed theologians of the time, excuse me, there's a night and day difference between them. Uh, What a lot of people may not know about Charles Briggs is that he was an Old Testament scholar, and he's the Briggs of the Brown Driver Briggs lexicon, and he also wrote the International Critical Commentary on the Psalms, at least the uh, the late 19th century version of it. I'm sure it's, I think it's been since replaced. <clears throat> but um, what Briggs does is he, you know, when he explains the anointing of the high priest with oil, it is a purely historical, critical treatment of the text. Uh, he mentions nothing of Christ and nothing of the Holy Spirit. By contrast, the, 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 the theologians of, of the 17th century looked at this passage and said, this is a typological portrait of Christ's anointing with the Spirit. And just as the oil is poured down upon the head of Aaron and it flows down to his beard and down onto his garments, this is a typological picture of Christ, the head of the church, receiving the outpouring of the Spirit. And then in turn, the Spirit uh, continues to flow onto the body of Christ or the body of the high priest. Uh, And so just as Christ pours out the Spirit upon the church at Pentecost, this is a shadowy image of that. So in that sense, you know, I can say that Briggs's exegesis is dry and it only has the dust of history blowing about it. And as important as the history is to situating a a passage in its context, he severs it from its connections to Christ and the Spirit. And so the, the theologians of the 17th century, they exegete it not only with a view to the history, but also with a view to Christ and the Spirit and the Church. And so in that sense, their exegesis is Christological, it's rich with the Spirit, and it's also rich with connections to the Church. So if I could put it very bluntly, I think uh, Briggs's exegesis falls way short, and um, you know the, the exegesis of these early modern Reformed theologians is uh, richly Christ-centered, and uh, eminently uh, practical and, you know, something that points us to the saving work of Christ through the Spirit. Yeah, I, th- th- I think it is uh, an interesting thing to see the 19th century, <clears throat> excuse me, and the in- the emphasis on the historical. Uh, and I think it's um, Hans Frey in his uh, The Eclipse of the Biblical Narrative notes the decline in the 19th century and even in the 18th of the kind of more typological readings. Um, so, Yeah. It's uh, it, it is an interesting to see how that then affects the theological conclusions, um, and then also even the way Briggs reads even the confessions. Now, moving to the third chapter, one of the things that you do is in fact then lay out more of the history of uh, different theologians, um, not just uh, in the Reformed tradition but prior um, to looking at this larger Christian theological tradition. And how the confession actually reflects this larger uh, tradition. Um, would you describe just a little bit of the history and then some of the ways that it actually manifests itself in the confession? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about the Westminster Divines is that they were incredibly knowledgeable of both early church and medieval church theology, uh, as well as the theology of the Reformation. You know, maybe it's because I'm seven years old at heart, but uh, I, um, you know, I illustrate it with my students by saying, if you poured me a bowl of raisin bran, I would immediately start plucking out all the raisins because I don't like them. Um, and especially the raisin bran raisins are really disgusting. And to me, uh, this will probably bother some of your listeners. They look like dead flies. I'm sorry. I, I just have to, I have to say it. I'm going to go out on a limb. And so I think that that's often the way that a lot of people who are familiar with the Reformed faith uh, look at medieval and patristic theology. They look at it like those nasty raisins in the bowl of cereal and they want to pick them out and they're not interested in them. Um, you know, and I think that this often uh, surfaces with uh, candidates for ordination where they know their Reformation history well, but if you ask them what patristic works have you read or what medieval works have you read or you ask them about their knowledge of those periods and they don't know very much. And so I wanted to show the reader that uh, the, the, the Westminster Divines and by extension the Westminster Confession of Faith is a Catholic lowercase c, uh, as in universal church, not as in Roman Catholic. It's a Catholic lowercase c document in that um, this may sound you know, uh, odd to some, but there is no unique doctrine, a reformed doctrine of the Trinity. There's no unique reformed doctrine of God. There's no unique reformed doctrine of Christ. There is no unique reformed doctrine of uh, the Trinity. And so by extension, there is no unique Reformed doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that we see uh, in the Westminster Confession is what you find in Augustine and in the medievals, in Thomas Aquinas and others. Uh, and yes, there may be slight nuances here and there, slight doctrinal differences. Uh, but even then, some of those differences say that you know, with Aquinas, for example, where Aquinas says that we receive the created grace of the Spirit in redemption, um, not the uh, immediate presence of the Spirit. Whereas somebody like Peter Lombard says, no, we receive the immediate presence of the Spirit. Okay, so the, the divines go with the opinion, or at least the position that you see reflected in Lombard, but again, that's not unique to the Reformed tradition. It has precedence in the Middle Ages, and it's an ongoing discussion. And so in that sense, I wanted to you know, show the reader um, how, how much Catholicity there is in Reformed theology on this particular doctrine. Yeah, and I think that that was uh, one of the really intriguing things was then to back up. And then, which actually leads us into the next question, you, in chapter four, you ask, you know, why does the Westminster Confession not have a distinct chapter on the third person of the Trinity? Um, and you also look at why are the 19th century theologians also different from, say, the uh, theologians who are writing the original confession? Could you share a little bit about um, 
particularly, what is it that these 19th century theologians are doing or assuming um, thinking that is affecting uh, or creating a disconnect with their own uh, tradition, so to speak? Yeah, there's there's two big um, two big stories that you know that that give the context to, to frame this question and answer. And the first is this: is that in prior to the 19th century, and uh, what you have is that theologians typically treated the person of the Holy Spirit uh, in the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, or when they treated the doctrine of God. And so that's where you would have to look for treatments of the person of the Holy Spirit. But then if you were to ask them, where's the work of the Holy Spirit, they would probably tell you from patristic all the way past the Reformation and beyond up until about the 19th century, the work of salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. So B.B. Warfield, when he was asked, why isn't there one chapter on the Westminster, uh, sorry, in the Westminster Confession of Faith about the, the work of the Holy Spirit? And he would say, there isn't one chapter because there are 13 chapters uh, on the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's everything from effectual calling all the way through glorification in the standards. That is all the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the person of the Holy Spirit is treated not only in chapter two on the doctrine of God, but also, as we mentioned earlier, in chapter eight on Christology. So it's all over the place. So that's the, the first observation, or that's the first you know, contextual kind of frame that we would want to put around this question is that that's how people prior to the 19th century dealt with this. Okay, so what's the second contextual frame that we want to put around this question. Why? What What accounts for the shift in the 19th and 20th centuries? Why all of a sudden uh, are theologians treating the doctrine of the Holy Spirit separately? Uh, and the answer comes because of the influence of uh, G.W.F. Hegel, um, in that uh, Hegel, uh, or let me back up even a little bit further it's around the 19th century that historians said that classic theology separated the doctrine of the Trinity because somebody like Aquinas first spoke of uh, the unity of God and spoke of the divine essence and then spoke of the triunity of God in the three persons. And supposedly, at least according to some of these historians, this separates the unity from the Trinity, so that uh, some have claimed you can't get from unity to Trinity. So that's the, the, the you know the the first step in the in the in the journey. The second step in this journey says that Hegel comes along, and he talks about the doctrine of the Trinity, but in a very different philosophical sense. And it's philosophical; it's not theological. But he does speak in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in particular, he says that the outworking of history is the outworking of the spirit uh, in history. And so all of a sudden, there's this huge emphasis upon the doctrine of the Holy Spirit at the um, impetus uh, of Hegel. And so this supposedly leads to what some historians have called a renaissance of the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's under the influence of Hegel. Uh, and so this is one of the reasons why somebody like Briggs looks at the Westminster Confession and says, this is deficient. He, they're not talking about the spirit 
in the similar ways as Hegel and other Hegelian-influenced theologians have been talking about the spirit. Uh, and, and so this is also supposedly a part of this great Trinitarian Renaissance that you see in the 20th century, whether it's with uh, Karl Barth uh, or, um, you know, uh, uh, oh, his name is eluding me, but it's, I'll say it again. Oh, Jürgen Moltmann. So Barth, Moltmann and others that, oh, this is a rebirth of the Trinity. But if you look closely, it's not really a rebirth of the Trinity. And it depends upon the theologian. Some conservative theologians can just treat the doctrine of the Holy Spirit separately, and what they would have said under the Trinity, they would have earlier, uh, they would now say in a separate chapter on the Holy Spirit. But others, uh, such as um, you know, such as uh, Moltmann, introduce, I think, because of the influence of Hegelian, uh, Hegel, and others, they introduce social Trinitarianism, which says that. Basically, the Trinity are three separate persons, three separate centers of consciousness. And so this is why there's such a, a, div a divergence that begins with the 19th and rolls on into the 20th century that I think a lot of people are unaware that Hegel has been such a, a powerful influence upon theology. And so I would say there's not been a renaissance of Trinitarianism, but it would be rather just be a birth of Hegelian-influenced Trinitarianism, and that the historic church has always taught and focused upon the work of the Trinity as evidenced by uh, that what you find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, among many, many, many other works. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things I also like that you drew out in the chapter is that it's not a contrast between sort of modern and old approaches to theology, but in fact, there's even medieval roots uh, sitting behind Briggs and Hegel as well, um, going back to um, so Joachim Fior, um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Uh. So, um, yeah, and I guess one of the things that you then conclude the book with is, you know, why is this debate pertinent for today? Um, why why do you see this study? Obviously, there's the influence as to seeing sort of where the theologies come from. Are there other things that you would say um, are significant as far as thinking about holding to a confession, you know, say after the Enlightenment, after uh, Hegel and uh, mm -hmm. after Briggs? Yeah, I, I would want to parse this very carefully so that people don't misunderstand me. It's like one of my professors used to say, it's bad enough to be understood, let alone misunderstood. Uh, so I would want to say that in principle, the belief or the, the view of any one particular philosopher is not automatically disqualified just because it's coming from a philosopher or an extra biblical source. So just because it's Hegel doesn't mean that it's automatically wrong anymore that just because it's Aristotle mean that it's automatically right. <clears throat> so that's the broad principle. In other words, we don't want to commit the genetic fallacy, which is something is disqualified just because of its source. So it must be wrong just because Hegel said it. Although sometimes I feel that way, I'll just, you know, be full, fully honest here and, and, you know, disclose that. Okay, so in principle, just because a philosopher says it doesn't make it automatically wrong. But then the next question is, is, can we affirm a um, you know enlightenment 
a philosophy uh, and hold that together with, say, the, 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 the early modern reform faith, i.e. the Westminster Confession of Faith? And I would say probably not, though it depends on what we're talking about. You know, so for example, um, can we use Hegel's idea of the Trinity? And I would say, nope, it's contrary to scripture. Um, can we say that God is working out spirit uh, in terms of in, in, in history and that we're coming to the evolutionary uh, apotheosis of history? And I would say not the way that Hegel says it, because it is, again, uh, contrary to scripture. Can we, with Immanuel Kant, say that uh, we can't know the noumenal realm, the, the, what is beyond where God dwells, and we can only know the phenomenal realm, which is what the, the world that we experience, I would say no. And it's not just because Kant says it, but it's because that is a, a, an idea that is contrary to scripture. Uh, you know, so the, you, we would have to talk on a, on a case-by-case basis. Uh, but that being said, um, perhaps some people will find this objectionable, but, you know, oh, well, here it goes, is that for the most part, I find Enlightenment philosophy on the whole uh, more or less incompatible with things like the Westminster Confession of Faith or, or anything before, you know, any, whether it's patristic, um, medieval, or um, or early modern. And it's because all of those periods, for the most part, had the same convictions and general philosophical outlook. Uh, and it's only with the Enlightenment that you, you know, that they start rejecting a lot of these, these, these things. But again, I would want to get into the nitty gritty to say, okay, let's, we can look at it on a case by case basis to say there may be some elements here or there. But at the end of the day, I think Enlightenment philosophy really stands at odds with the claims of what we find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, so that would, I think, be one of the important things that we could see as walking away with this book. But, you know, another thing that I hope it impresses upon people is to ask, you know, what philosophical ideas may I be unconsciously assuming without really checking to see what, what you know, why why do I believe this? Uh, why do I believe these these things? And how has the church uh, articulated these beliefs prior? And if they're different from my convictions, why? And let me find find that out. Yeah, I think that the uh, the way that you conclude, uh, you examine a number of things uh, as far as um, yeah, what is this? You know, I mean, it's interesting because Briggs is someone who's really largely forgotten, um, and even a number of the folks involved in this debate. But it was interesting uh, and helpful to see, um, yeah, how you kind of then brought it, returned it back to, I guess, really the 21st century, not the 20th century where he started. But um, so, um, thank you so much for sharing about the book. I, I wonder before we conclude if you would share: are, are there kind of other projects that this? Um, that this particular study uh, prompted for you? You know, it's part of a larger project that I have just in terms of trying to make sure I understand the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms, because <clears throat> there's a sense in which they are uh, deceptively simple 
And they're written that way for a reason, because they're written for the church. But I say deceptively because there are all sorts of small details in them where the average reader in the pew is not going to immediately be able to detect the medieval or patristic roots uh, to <clears throat> what they're reading, you know, and like one of the things that I've been researching as of late that I personally find fascinating is that the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That whole idea of enjoying God is something that goes all the way back to Augustine. And I think very few people are aware of that. And when you go and tap out its, uh, or, you know, f- search out its, it's, uh, it's, it's theological roots all the way back in the theology of Augustine, all of a sudden there's a very enriching and very rewarding, uh, you know, uh, I- exploration of these ideas. So it's part of that broader project just to, you know, uh, to, to, to understand the Westminster standards. Mm-hmm. Well, that definitely sounds very interesting and look forward to maybe seeing uh, some publications on that. So, Sounds um, good. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for uh, walking us through some uh, 19th century theological debate. Sounds good. And thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely.